This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Condopedia. This episode is a recording of a webinar that took place on February 25th, 2021. In this webinar, we answer some questions about some up-and-coming issues within the condominium industry in Ontario. We had a bit of a technical difficulty around the middle of the webinar. So for questions within that portion of the webinar, we decided to put those answers in writing. So I will be including in the show notes a link to our blog with the questions and the answers. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Happy lunch hour. It's 12 o'clock, almost 12 o'clock. It's 11.58 on this gorgeous sunshiny day. I hope that everybody is really enjoying the sun and the recent snowfall. It's just a couple of minutes to noon. It's 11.58 and our registration has just opened and our numbers are flying up. So just give everybody a couple of minutes to get themselves into the meeting. We're going to start very shortly. We have a jam-packed session here today. We're very excited with some of the topics we've received. A quick note that if you have to drop off a little bit early today, not to worry. We will be posting this on our Condopedia uh, um, podcast which hopefully everybody has been enjoying as well. David on screen here today, David, quick wave there. David is our host of the Condopedia podcast. We're very excited to have that out there. There's already, I think, nine sessions. So if you haven't reviewed them yet, definitely go ahead and check them out. So we have just about 200, almost 200 registrants today. So we're just gonna go ahead and give everybody a couple more minutes to log in. I've heard from a few people that are going to join us about halfway through. So as soon as our numbers start to cap out, we'll go ahead and get ourselves going probably in about another 30 seconds to a minute. It's really fantastic to see so many familiar names joining us here today. And it is Thursday, close to the weekend. So I'm really hoping that with the recent snowfall and the ski hills opening up in Ontario and the ski and snowshoeing trails looking so fantastic that everybody maybe has some plans to get out and enjoy some beautiful weather this weekend. It promises to be warm and sunny and with so much in the capital to enjoy, hopefully everybody's got some time to do so. I also see on Twitter frequently lots of people with uh, great photos of the National Capital Region. Some of you, you know who you are. So feel free to share your photos with us this weekend so we can see all the fabulous sights. So it looks like our numbers are starting to level out and it is 12 o'clock. So we're going to go ahead and get ourselves started because, again, we have a jam-packed session here today. So we're delighted to be having our third Q&A with DHA. And as I said, we have almost 200 registrants at today and we had over 80 questions. There are a lot of burning questions out there. Unfortunately, there's no way we can tackle all of them in 60 minutes. So what we've done is we've lumped them into groups as much as possible. We're going to try and tackle the questions that have very similar themes and hopefully do our very best to tackle everybody's questions or the ones that are most common for most attendees here today. We also did receive a few questions were just a little bit too fact specific and we wouldn't be able to tackle those without specific information and looking at the governing documents for a particular condo. So we weren't able to tackle that uh, some of those specific questions. If you still have questions later on, of course, don't hesitate to reach out to any member of the team. 
Each of our team will tackle a specific topic and again, deal with the various questions that arose with respect to that topic. Now, at the end of our session today, we're going to be introducing a new series. It's a lunch and learn session. It's called DHA Condo Crunch. We're looking forward to this. It's a bit of a play on words. We recognize that most people are on a bit of a time crunch. So we're gonna keep the session short and directed, half hour to 45 minutes, an hour if we absolutely have to. And of course, most attendees like to crunch their lunch during the noon hour. So we'll hold the session starting at noon and again, keep them short and to the point. We're aiming for one a month with the first one currently gonna be happening early April. So what's the topic you say? Well, we don't know. We don't know the topic because you are going to choose a topic. So don't leave early. If you, if you can stay the whole time at the very end of our session, we're going to put up a poll and our attendees today are going to choose the first DNA DHA condo crunch lunch topic. So we're looking forward to that. So let's dive in into our first topic. Our first topic is one that we received almost the most questions about, and it's not surprising that we received so many questions about this. It's the role of directors, how to make decisions, what if we can't agree, all of the various questions that come up with being a director. There's a lot of sensitive issues that came up over this past year as a result of the pandemic. Directors have had a lot of tough decisions to make. So over to Christy to tackle our questions on that topic. Over to you. Thank you, Nancy. And thanks everyone for being here. We're really excited to be doing this today and to have as many of you with us as we've got. Um, as Nancy said, we did get a lot of questions with respect to the role of directors. So I tried to uh, select, we, we had some repeating themes. So I've tried to focus um, the, my comments on the, the three um, questions that seem to pop up sort of more commonly. So the first one is, are board members entitled to receive detailed information on owners, including telephone or email contact information? Of course, uh, condominium directors are entitled to any information that's collected buyer on behalf of the corporation. Um, so that would include uh, telephone and email contact information for owners. However, directors do have an obligation to use any information that they receive in their role as directors only for the purposes that um, are applicable to them as directors. So uh, in, in terms of the use of owner's telephone or email contact information, that private information belonging to owners, that information could only be used by directors um, again, for purposes that are in line with their role as directors, in line with the objects and duties of the corporation. They couldn't use that information for their own personal purposes to reach out to owners for personal reasons, including um, trying to get owners to uh, sign on or get on board with a requisition. And uh, Nancy <laughs> mentioned this to me earlier today, or to sell Mary Kay. They can't do that either. So um, so it's, it's in terms of their use of the information, they have to be careful, but uh, they are certainly entitled to that information because it is collected by um, the manager on behalf of the corporation. The next uh, question that we had sort of commonly here was, uh, what responsibilities do condo boards have to ensure that landlords are following the Condominium Act with their tenants? Um, Condominium boards generally, and pursuant to section 17 sub three of the Condominium Act, um, that section confirms that the corporation has a duty to ensure that owners, occupiers of units, uh, lessees of the common elements, agents, employees of the corporation, all of, that, all of these parties comply uh, with the act and the governing documents of the condominium corporation. So the corporation and its board do have a role to play in terms of ensuring compliance of 
um, tenants with uh, the corporation's governing documents and with the act. But likewise, um, uh, landlord owners have an obligation to ensure that their tenants are also complying and that's set out at section 119 sub two of the act. So both parties, the condominium through its board and landlord owners have an obligation to ensure tenants compliance with uh, the governing documents. The corporation's behavior in terms of how to deal with a, a, a non-compliant tenant uh, is really going to be initially probably directed at the owner. So trying to de deal with the non-compliance through the owner. And if the corporation ultimately has to take legal action to address the non-compliance, the corporation can take action against both the owner and the tenant uh, because the owner is also failing in their obligation to ensure that their tenant is complying with the act and the governing documents. And last but not least, in terms of the questions that I'm gonna to tackle today, if directors uh, at a self-managed condominium are paid, does that mean that they must be licensed under the CMRAO? Um, this is a really interesting question. Uh, and sorry, it licensed under the CMRAO that should actually be the CMSA, so the Condominium Management Services Act. That act requires that anyone providing condominium management services must be licensed. Condominium management services is a defined term and it's set out in that act. Um, but essentially, if, if there's any work going on that qualifies as condominium management work, the individual performing that work must be licensed unless they're exempt. And there's a series of exemptions um, in the regulations to the CMSA. And one of the exemptions is uh, condominium directors um, uh, I'm going to read it actually for you. A person who is elected or appointed as an officer of a condominium corporation under the Condominium Act, including an officer who receives compensation pursuant to a bylaw uh, made under the Act, unless the person is providing condominium management services for compensation or reward or the expectation of such. So it's not entirely clear, but basically, if a, just because a director is receiving compensation pursuant to a bylaw passed by the owners allowing for direct, the directors to receive compensation, doesn't mean that they require a license under the CMSA. That would only be applicable if they are only receiving that compensation or receiving that compensation primarily in exchange for the delivery of management services. Um, it can be a fine line, obviously, and so each case is going to have to be looked at a little bit uh, individually, but a couple of points to note. Um, if a director, one or two uh, directors or, or maybe more, have taken on more of a role in terms of management and the other directors are really just meeting on a monthly basis, um, and those who have taken on more of a role in management are the ones receiving compensation. That's sort of indicative that they're being compensated for their delivery of management services um, and not as a director. Um, on the other hand, if you have all directors receiving the same level of compensation, that's more an indication that they are receiving the compensation in their role as directors. One thing for sure is that if you are receiving compensation and you are providing what are what could be considered to be management services, that's okay. But again, the compensation can't be for those management services that are being provided. And so you're going to want to detail that arrangement, document that arrangement um, in the bylaw that's passed, approving the compensation, and um, perhaps also by way of board resolution, and also if there's any contracts involved, um, it's going to have to be clear that whatever condominium management services are being provided um, are not the, uh, the that's not the work that's being compensated. The work that's being compensated is, is 
the duties um, that are being performed as directors. Again, it's a fine line. So I would encourage you if you're in this situation to um, maybe seek some input from your legal counsel. Uh, we're obviously happy to help with, with that. So that wraps up my questions. Nancy, I'm gonna throw it back to you. Thank you, Christy. Really, really tough issues. We had a couple of other topics in the director feed about uh, toxicity on the board, dealing with difficult directors, how to make decision making. So say, stay tuned in the future. Perhaps we may have a condo, uh, condo crunch session on that particular issue. So we'll turn now to the next topic, which is the topic we received the second most questions about, and that is shockingly COVID. <laughs> We're all still embroiled in this pandemic and we will be for a while. Uh, I do know we did re receive a, a couple of questions about vaccinations. We're not going to touch on that topic today because it is evolving. So again, stay tuned for a future session on that topic. But we are going to start off, I think, with one of the most uh, uh, pressing issues that we've heard about recently, which is screening. Cheryl's going to get into that. And Cheryl, should we share our screen right, right away? Share our screen about screening? Uh, sure. Yep, that works. So, okay. Uh, so Cheryl, over to you and Ali, if you can share our screen for Cheryl's presentation. Okay. So for the purposes of today, we don't have enough time to go um, into depth about the, sorry, <laughs> the screen share just cut off my other screen. Um, we don't have enough time to go into depth on, the, on these issues. Um, but we did post a blog about screening. So if you see where Ali's sharing her screen now, uh, you can look up that blog and it gives more detailed information about this. But I am going to turn to some of the specific questions and address those. So the first question is, are condos considered businesses or organizations? If so, is it mandatory for condos to undertake COVID testing at entrances? And if so, does this apply to residents and guests of residents? And so in our view, based on the reviewing the information by public health and the comments um, made from public health in various jurisdictions, condominium corporations do likely qualify as organizations. And as a result, uh, condominiums would then have to uh, comply with these uh, screening requirements. Um, Condos don't have to do testing for COVID, but they are required to implement the screening procedures. And so de defining what this means, there's two different levels of screening that condominium corporations must implement. There's a passive screening requirement and an active screening requirement. So for passive screening, all of the visitors to the building are required to be screened. So condominiums are not required to screen residents. Um, however, <laughs> a little caveat to that, if uh, residents do have symptoms of COVID-19, they should be complying with public health guidelines on how to isolate. Um, for the passive screening requirement, condos would need to post signage on the entrances uh, to confirm that visitors must screen themselves before entering the building. And so there's a couple of uh, links to signage in that blog so that you have a resource available to you to post. Um, there's no requirement that condos um, check with visitors as they're entering to confirm whether the screening's been done. Now for active screening, um, condominium corporations have to actively screen um, workers before they enter the building. So this can be employees of the condominium corporation, the superintendent, um, the concierge um, contractors that are coming in to do work on the common elements, 
um, or within the units. So this active screening requirement means you have to make sure that these workers answer the screening questions before they uh, enter the premises. One of the options, as you'll see in the blog, is that uh, condominium corporations can ask all workers to fill out the Government of Ontario screening form. Um, there's a link in the blog and they would just click on that link, answer the questions, and then when you get to the end of the questions, it gives options and one of those options is to email the results to uh, the condominium corporation. So you can set it up that they're required to email it to the property manager, that they're required to email it to the corporation's general email, but setting that up so that they can put the um, send that in before they get to the site. The other thing that you should consider is having hard copies available on site in case a worker is not able to access the documents electronically. Um, we know that this is uh, likely daunting for condominium corporations to undertake, um, but I have seen managers getting creative and um, including the screening wording requirements in their purchase orders and emails going out to the workers um, and putting it on other documentation. So you can consider doing that for your condominium corporation. Okay, so the what are the risks during the pan? What are the risks? And the next question, what are the risks associated with having or not having a concierge on site during the pandemic? I wouldn't say that there's a specific risk. Concierges aren't, or concierges are not required to um, be on site, but there is definitely a benefit if there is a concierge there that you can have um, the concierge implement these screening procedures for workers, but there is no requirement for that. And then um, the last question I'm going to touch on just for time purposes is, are condos required to create a COVID-19 plan or is this only for businesses? So I believe this question is relating to the requirement for a COVID-19 safety plan. Based on the current wording of the legislation, it's my view that this is not required for condominium corporations. There was um, different wording during lockdown and it could have been interpreted to require condos to have these plans but uh, if they had employees on site. However, at this time, it's my view that it's not required. With that said, implementing this type of safety plan is a great idea. It provides you with questions that you can think about to ensure that the board manager and owners are all on the same page when dealing with the COVID-19 and the ongoing changes um, that come at the corporation based on the regulations. Um, and just uh, recognize if you do put a plan into place that it's evolving and make sure that you're reviewing it regularly. All right. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Cheryl. So many COVID questions. Another question we got on COVID is whether or not work on the common elements is permitted. That, come, that goes on and off depending on what stage we are in the lockdown. I encourage you to go to our blog. Our most recent blog talks about what can and cannot be completed at this stage of the game, including work on the common elements. Ali showed you a little bit of a snapshot of where our blog is. If you have any trouble finding it, don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. So that brings us over to our next topic. It's not enough that we're in a pandemic and we have to worry about all that stuff we also have to worry about our condo documents are our condo documents up to snuff jessica is going to walk us through some of the questions that we received about amending your corporation's documents jessica over to you thanks nancy 
Okay, so today I'm going to touch on a few questions, as Nancy said, that we received about amending uh, corporations governing documents. The first question we received had to do with regulating uh, modifications made by owners to the common elements. Um, as many of you, I'm sure, know, common element modifications made by owners are going to be governed by Section 98 of the Condominium Act. And there are three general ways to deal with and regulate uh, these type of modifications. The first way is for the condominium corporation to enter into individual separate agreements with each owner who wants a particular modification. These agreements are then registered on title to the subject unit and will govern the modification. Uh, this approach is generally the most expensive because a new agreement is prepared and negotiated with each owner. Um, but I do note that often the fees are gonna be covered by the owner who's seeking uh, the modification. The second option is for the corporation to enter into some sort of bulk agreement with owners to govern modifications. So this type of agreement is going to include a schedule of the owners and is again going to be registered on title to the units. Uh, the price for this type of agreement ranges depending on the size of the condo, but it can be anywhere from three to $6,000 depending on uh, what we're looking at for the document that you would need in your case. The third option is a common element modification bylaw. And in our view, these can be an excellent option uh, as the registration of the bylaw on title to all the units meets the registration requirements under the Condo Act. And additionally, since the bylaw requires a vote of the owners to be passed, it also uh, can meet that voting, voting requirement under the Act, which can sometimes apply to these type of modifications. So generally speaking, owners who make the permitted modifications set out in the bylaw are required to complete an acknowledgement form, which is kept in the unit file. Uh, these acknowledgement forms are uh, not registered, uh, but kept uh, to reference uh, to give you a, a record of, of what modifications have been made. So in our view, uh, these type of bylaws do the trick of meeting the requirements under Section 98 of the Act, and generally it's the most economical approach to uh, regulating common element modifications. Um, you kind of can do the bylaw, list the permitted modifications, and then you can reference it for all these sorts of modifications that you see come up in your community often. Um, so uh, it can be a good option to regulate uh, the modifications. And uh, in our view, it can apply to any sort of common element modification made by owners, uh, and it can help to also regulate modifications made prior to 2001. Um, a reminder to those who have common element modification bylaws in place is to make sure that you are getting the acknowledgement form signed. Often once we have a, sometimes we see when the bylaws are registered, uh, we're not taking that extra step to actually get the acknowledgement form signed. So make sure you get them signed and you're keeping them in your unit file. The next question that we received on the topic had to do with amendments to declaration. Uh, we note that with the changes to the Condo Act, it's a great time for condos to be reviewing and updating your declarations to either bring them in line with the new legislation or just to amend them to include preferred provisions. Uh, generally speaking, the declaration provisions that we're most excited about amending uh, recently have been uh, indemnification provisions. This is the at the top of our list are of important provisions that you want to get reviewed. And we want to ensure that condos are have strongly worded indemnification provisions in their declarations. We're also worried about some of the older provisions about insurance and access provisions, and we'd like to see these cleaned up in many cases. Uh, sometimes we also notice the repair and maintenance obligations are not entirely clear enough in the declaration, and so an amendment can be helpful to clarify those responsibilities. Another example, if a condo wants to prohibit pets subject to human rights, that's also something we can accomplish through a declaration amendment. 
Uh, we were asked on ways that the condo can consider saving money to do this. And I note that there's no fancy way to save money during the process, but it's all, always helpful to have good templates and prepare persuasive documents to share with owners, which will make getting the amendments passed by the owners hopefully more efficient. Uh, we find it helpful to provide owners with good summaries of what changes the board is proposing and why, and having these circulated to owners so that hopefully the, the approval process goes a little bit smoothly and more efficiently. And uh, my last question that I'm just going to touch on, we uh, received a question about the wildest things we've seen in bylaws, uh, but instead of answering that, I'm going to offer you some thoughts on the bylaw provisions that we think are the most important that you want to see in your, in your documents. Uh, the first being that we like to see strong indemnification provisions for directors in your bylaws. We like to see provisions confirming that payments made by owners towards common expenses are going to be applied to the earliest arrears. We also like uh, detailed provisions about access to units and provisions requiring owners to disclose symptoms or issues they notice on the property. And also, as many uh, people are talking about lately, good new provisions relating to virtual meetings and voting. So I think the name of the game is just to make sure your bylaws and your declaration are updated and kept consistent with changes in legislation. So it's always a good idea to make sure you're reviewing them periodically. Uh, and that's something that should be on top of mind for boards and directors. And I'll hand it back over to you, Nancy. Thank you, Jessica. So much information to share. And again, if you have any questions about updating your documents, don't hesitate to reach out. Now, I'm seeing we're getting a couple of questions in the Q&A. We won't be able to delve into the Q&A chats today because we have so many questions to answer in advance. But what we'll do is we will take those Q&As that we receive in the written Q&A below here and add them to our ongoing list of questions for our upcoming DHA Q&As. Uh, we just want to make sure that we tackle the ones that we have received in advance first, and then we'll save those for another date. So thank you for that. Now, as we're all staying home right now, as much as we possibly can, it's brought a pretty big spotlight on some issues that may we, maybe we didn't previously see or weren't noted. And that's presenting a bit of a challenge in tight quarters. Uh, these such challenging situations such as dealing with physical or mental health issues, reduced capacity, and increased uh, observations of hoarding in units. So we're going to turn over to Emily to talk about some of these close quarter issues that we're seeing pop up. Emily, over to you. Great, thanks Nancy and uh, good afternoon to everyone who's here watching. Um, so as Nancy mentioned, I'll be talking broadly about the two topics, mental health issues that uh, you may be experiencing within your condominiums as well as the um, issue of hoarding. So first, uh, just generally, whenever there are mental health issues involved, of course, what we're always thinking about is balancing the corporation's duties under the Condominium Act, along with uh, its human rights obligations under the Human Rights Code. This of course can be a very challenging assessment to, to do and is often on a case-by-case -case basis because no two situations are the same and um, there are many factors to be considered when someone is suffering from a mental health or disability issue. Um, so as many of you may already be aware, uh, where human rights concerns are involved, the corporation is required to accommodate the individual suffering from the mental illness up to the point of undue hardship. And that's a term, that's a threshold that is not specifically defined, um, but it often means that corporations have to go above and beyond in order to accommodate these individuals, or um, we like to say they have to bend over backwards in order to uh, help assist these individuals in these circumstances. One of the steps that we often recommend um, to boards is to reach out to family members or friends if they have the contact information available to see if 
any of the individuals, family members or friends are able to assist with uh, the compliance issues that may be happening uh, or the non-compliance issues that may be happening in the condominium. And sometimes there may also be municipal or social services available to assist. Uh, where the individual in question is a tenant or an occupant, reaching out to the owner is also a great first step uh, because ultimately the owner would be the one that is responsible for non-compliance issues of the condominium unit. And again, as I mentioned, the board in these situations need, needs to consider what it can do and do everything possible in order to assist the individual by providing them reasonable opportunities to correct their behavior and giving them all the information in terms of their obligations to do so. Um, now, ultimately, where a resident is unable or refuses to cooperate to comply with the corporation's governing documents and the corporation has reached out to family, they've communicated with the owner, they perhaps reached out to municipal or other social services, um, the board may want to consider in that circumstance commencing a court application for a forced sale of the unit or eviction in the case of a tenant for eviction of the tenant or occupant. Now, this is something to be considered only in extreme situations because it's not something that courts like to um, order and it often involves situations where significant breaches are occurring and not just relatively minor disturbances and and in this case where you do proceed to court again the court will be looking at all the steps that the corporation has taken prior to commencing court proceedings in terms of what uh, the, the corporation has done to meet that threshold of undue hardship and as I mentioned, this is a very fact-specific um, analysis and will the threshold and what that threshold looks like will be different for every situation. And um, while there are definitely situations where this threshold is met, it is a very high threshold and the remedy of forced sale or eviction is considered to be very harsh and in some cases draconian. So the, the court is not, um, the court is not quick to award these sorts of, or to, to rule for these sorts of remedies uh, in cases where we do proceed to, to court. Um, what usually happens is uh, we begin with an application for compliance for the, for the occupant or the resident of the unit. And in, once you have that order for compliance, if there are subsequent breaches, then you would go back to court to seek a forced sale or an eviction of the tenant. Now, moving on to the specific situation of hoarding, uh, of course, hoarding is something that often results as a mental health illness as well. And so a lot of the similar situations or a lot of the similar steps that I've just mentioned will, will apply as well. And in this case, however, there's usually more obvious signs of health and safety risks, such as uh, in situations of hoarding, there can often be increased risk of fire, increased risk of harm during fire, um, things like pests, water escape, and mold risks as well. Um, and as with most mental health concerns, hoarding is obviously a situation that is very delicate. And the corporation's approach, again, must consider what accommodations can be made for uh, the particular hoarding owner. This, of course, doesn't mean that the hoarding is permitted to continue. It just means that the corporation is required to go above and beyond to explain the situation to the hoarding owner the owner's legal obligations and perhaps financial implications that may result from continued um, hoarding and also provide them with reasonable opportunities to bring their unit into compliance. Again, it's helpful um, in our experience to be able to reach out to a family member or a friend who may be able to assist the owner or the resident 
And in some cases, it might be a good idea to involve the local fire or health department, uh, or again, relevant social services that could help. Ultimately, in our experience, enforcement, enforcement responsibility in these cases often does fall on the corporation. And when corporations are dealing with issues of hoarding, it's often a fairly lengthy process to resolve everything. And just in brief, this uh, involves collecting initial evidence, so performing an initial inspection of the unit to determine if there's any damage or what repairs might need to be addressed and the um, extent of the cleanup that is required. Um, throughout the process, regular communication should be maintained with the hoarding owner, so they're aware of the steps that are being taken and um, the cost that they will ultimately have to pay at the end if the corporation is taking over the repair and cleanup work. And of course, providing them an opportunity before the corporation does any work for the owner themselves to go in and complete any of the work that is required. And one of the most important steps uh, is to arrange for a thorough inspection by a corporation's engineer. And in that case, we would receive a full report on all of the risks that need to be addressed and all of the repairs that need to be done within the unit. Um, and then providing a copy to the hoarding owner and a reasonable period for them to complete the work recommended by the engineer. However, in most cases, you may find that the corporation will often need to take charge of arranging for that work um, and completing the work and in the end, charging back the cost to the owner. Uh, in one specific situation that we're dealing with now, the owner is unable to pay in the end for the, um, for the work that has been done by the corporation. So it, in that case, there may be there may be a need to involve the mortgagee and ultimately um, a power of sale process may be required. Fantastic, Emily, thank you for that. And of course, one of the key things that we always remember when we're dealing with these situations is kindness and respect. We always wanna make sure that our communications with anyone who is affected with these types of challenges are kind and that we are respectful at all times. So let's move right along then to our next topic. Again, not only a pandemic, not only changes to our documents, but we have changes to the Condo Act. So David, over to you, what's going on in the world of condo legislation review and revision? Thanks, Nancy. I'm, I'm recognizing of the time, so I'll try to go a bit faster. Um, yeah, so my topic is about Condo Act amendments, and also I'm going to ask, uh, answer a question about the development of virtual meetings and whether those will be allowed under the Condo Act as well. Now, as many of us know, the condo industry has gone through a lot of changes over the past few years. Remember the time before the pandemic when we in the industry were only dealing with changes to the Condo Act in 2017, the new Condominium Management Services Act, and also changes to the Construction Act? Well, I kind of miss those times sometimes. Well, obviously the world has changed massively, but then you know the saying, the more things change, the more, the more things stay the same. But that holds true with respect to Condo Act amendments. There's still plenty of amendments that have not yet been put in force. So here are some examples. Uh, no fines to be charged to owners. Unit entry without notice in an emergency only permitted if the declaration of the bylaws say so. Sheriff facilities agreements will become mandatory in many situations. Limits to be placed on the legal rights of declarants. Enhanced disclosure obligations for declarants, including specifics about first year reserve fund budgeting and new declarations are required to say about how the declarant arrived at common expense sharing. And also some clarifications on court orders for compliance. So uh, some clarifications on the rights of the winning party as to cost and I think for some amendments that we are really looking forward to is um, 
whether it will be possible to charge an owner for actual expenses and to add those amounts to the owner's common expenses, as long as the declaration permits it. We're hoping that with this specific amendment, uh, it will help clarify some difficulties and some confusion that was caused by the recent Amani decision. So uh, I, I went through like a very brief list of some of the amendments. There are actually a lot more amendments that are not yet put in force. Uh, but once we know when they're put in force, we'll definitely be blogging about them. So keep an eye out for that. You know, the interesting thing about, at least from my perspective, about these new amendments is that it is essentially fresh ground for the courts to interpret these provisions. Um, in some instances, Condo Act provisions are worded very broadly for this purpose because as time passes, society changes, but yet the wording of the act does not. So there's a need to ensure that the courts have an ability to interpret in accordance to the needs of the present. One great example is that section 58 sub one of the act, which talks about the ability for the board to make, amend, repeal rules that promote the safety, security, or welfare of the owners and the property and the assets. When this provision was drafted way back in the day, I don't think the Ontario legislature had in mind short-term rentals like Airbnbs. But because how the words are constructed, we are able to rely on these terms to satisfy the needs of a modern condominium community. Talking about modern needs, uh, we all know that virtual meetings and voting looks like they're gonna be staying even after the pandemic is over. And we know that right now, the government is considering changes to the Condo Act to authorize these digital processes. Most recently, the government asked the public for input on this idea. The deadline to submit feedback on this idea was earlier this month, so we just now have to wait to see what the government does next. Now, condominiums can still hold virtual meetings right now. The temporary amendments that originally permitted this has been extended until May 31st of this year, although there are some certain restrictions. Condominiums can also consider passing a bylaw allowing for virtual meetings and voting. This way, there wouldn't be a need to rely on the government to pass the necessary changes to the Condo Act. So that's something if your community is interested for you guys to consider. And that's all from me. We're grateful for everybody attending. We're just delighted to see all the familiar faces. We're just going to give everybody just a few more seconds to cast your vote. The numbers are still coming in. And we're going to count down on voting in just a couple of seconds. We're almost there. Almost everybody has voted. So here we go. I'm going to count down on closing our poll in five seconds. Here we go. Five, four, three, two, and one. I will end the polling and I'm going to share those results. Okay, folks, 54%, the board of directors wins. So board obligations, Christy, sounds like your topic was, uh, the winner today, so to speak. So we're going to talk more about board obligations and the intricacies of board relationships at our first ever DHA Condo Crunch. Watch for the blog, listen to the podcast, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day, all. Thanks again. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Condopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsoncondolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet.
you can find them at purple-planet.com.